Well, good morning, Frontline family. It's uh, really my privilege to be with you all this morning and to preach God's Word once again. Are you ready for the Word this morning, church? That was half of you. Are you ready for the Word this morning? Amen. Let's pray and, and commit this time to the Lord. Lord God, it is our privilege to gather as your church this morning and to commit this time to you. As we study your truth today, we ask that you would sharpen the focus of our minds so that we would fully commit this time to your living and breathing word. It is our desire as your church to represent you the way you deserve. So show us today what this word means for our lives individually and for this body of Christ in this season that we find ourselves in. Lord, your word says that everything will fade away. The grass withers and the flowers fall, fall, but the word of God endures forever. So Lord, let your word today be an enduring word that brings everlasting fruit in the lives of your children. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen and Amen. Church, this morning we continue with our series, Revealing Jesus. And as for the introduction that I gave you two weeks back, this is a series about the book of Revelation. As you would recall, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means an unveiling or a revealing. And throughout this series, we will see Jesus unveiled and revealed in a magnificent way. Our focus as we go through this somewhat challenging and sometimes controversial book is not to get into doctrinal debates or to prove that you are either right or wrong about Jesus' second coming. The purpose, firstly, is to reveal the magnificence and splendor of our risen Savior, His authority over this world, its end times and restoration thereof. And secondly, to prepare ourselves for what God is doing in this season so that we would be ready for what He wants to do through us, His church, for such a time as this. Amen? Amen. And even though we could never and should never put a date on when Jesus is going to come again, we should at least be acquainted with the signs of the times. As I said last time, let us be careful when we study this book because Not everything, church, everything does not necessarily mean something in our world right now. Not every new piece of technology that is created that is a payment methodology is the mark of the beast. And not every dominating world leader that is currently on the scene is the antichrist or the false prophet. Right, what we're experiencing now are the birth pains. And yes, Jesus is coming to take us home again one day. And yes, this world is becoming darker and darker and more and more evil, but let's put it in its right context so that we correctly reveal Jesus and prepare ourselves with joyful anticipation of His imminent return. Amen? So today, as we start to get into some of the detail of the Scriptures in chapter 1, I will still be setting some foundation for what we will be covering throughout this book and throughout this series. You're going to find out that we're going to be moving slow to begin with, and we will pick up speed as we go through the book. 
I don't want you to think that we will be here past the second coming still studying the book of Revelation. Why not, not, eh? Maybe. Who knows what happens? But as old-time preachers used to say, start low, go slow, rise higher, catch fire. Right? And that's what we're going to do here. It's going to take us a while to get this gospel train out of the station because for a while we are going to be laying some necessary groundwork to help us understand the entire book. But as we progress and the more that we reveal Jesus, we are going to be ignited with joyful anticipation of our Savior's return and of what our Savior promises for our eternity. Now church, just to give you a heads up, We're going to encounter a lot of numbers, signs, analogies, hyperboles, and figures of speech that are all symbolic of literal things that will happen in the future. I'm going to teach the book of Revelation from a literal standpoint where we take everything that is symbolic in nature and see it as prophetic and relating to future events leading up to and including the second coming of Jesus. To give you a couple of examples, in the book of Revelation, you're going to find out that Jesus is described as a lamb, but he's also described as a lion. We're going to find four living creatures around the throne of God with eyes covering their bodies. One has the face of a lion, the other has the face of a calf, one has the face of an eagle, and the other has the face of a man. This is all highly symbolic. We're also going to find the beast that comes out of the sea, a wicked and grotesque beast which represents the Antichrist, and the beast that comes out of the land is the false prophet. So we have animals and beasts that are all symbolic in nature, but they have literal meaning and represent literal individuals. There's also also reference to many different colors in the book of Revelation, For example, we find the color white being used over and over again. For instance, there will be people in white robes. There will be people riding on white horses. The bride of Christ will be dressed in a white wedding gown. And we are going to find the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon a great white throne. There is also the symbolic reference to stars and things taking place in the heavenlies among many others. All these are symbolic in nature, but we are going to see how they are all literal events that will happen in the future, and also literal individuals that will come on the scene at specific times. Numbers are also very significant in this book, and to just give you one example, the number seven is used 55 times or 54 times throughout this book. There are seven churches. Seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven stars, seven thunders that give an utterance to name but a few. And again, numbers are used very symbolically throughout this book to bring literal meaning to what Jesus is telling us. So all I can say is hold on to your seats because we are in for a ride as we unpack these amazing mysteries in the Word of God. So let's get started from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Otherwise, we might just be here until the second coming, right? Have you got your Bibles open? 
It says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, remember last time I told you, this is not John's revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now, let's pause there, because you might read that and say things like, you know, and think to yourself, things that must shortly take place. I mean, John wrote this over 1,900 years ago, and that's not a short period of time. But in fact, church, the Greek for shortly there are two words. They are the words en tachai, and they mean quickly or suddenly. And it means suddenly, not in the sense that things will necessarily happen soon, but in the sense that when they do happen, they will happen rapidly or in quick succession. In other words, once it starts, it's going to take place within a very brief period of time. Let me give you a mental picture of, of what I mean. It's this picture of dominoes that are all lined up in perfect sequence, and once you trip one of them, they will all fall in rapid succession. And that's how the end times are going to happen. Once the first event takes place, it's all going to happen in rapid succession. Does that make sense? The rest of verse 1 says, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And this is interesting because this won't be the last time that the book of Revelation mentions the assistance of angels in delivering some of these symbolic things and some of these important messengers. In fact, the word angel is, appears 76 times in the book of Revelation. God uses angels at different times throughout the book of Revelation. And in this first example, it is just simply a reminder that many of the visions that John has come by the assistance of angels. Right, and if a non-believer asks you, listen, are angels real? You say, absolutely. Because not only are they mentioned 76 times in the book of Revelation, but throughout all of Scripture, they are mentioned around 300 times. And church, just a quick side note. That doesn't mean that it's okay to go to someone who reads angel cards or, or prays to angels and, and gets guidance from angels. Right, because angels are not God. They are God's messengers, and they serve in different capacities at the Lord's command. Right? So God sent and signified this revelation of Jesus Christ by his angel to his servant John. And it says in verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, you've got to imagine for a moment that John's senses are going wild here. Because he mentions things that he saw 36 times in the book of Revelation, but he also talks about things that he heard 27 times. So he's been bombarded with all these amazing sights and sounds, but, but note what it says there. It says he bore witness to some of the things. Most of the things? He bore witness to all these things. In other words, he hasn't missed a thing. This is a complete and perfect record of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can be assured of that. Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads, that would be me for today, and those who hear, that would be you for today. The words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
Remember, as I mentioned last time, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book. This is predictive prophecy. But interestingly, what you have here, church, is the first of seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Right? Some people call it the seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Not so long ago, we came through the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And can you remember what the word blessed means? Anybody? The word blessed in the Greek literally means, oh, how happy. Right? Oh, how happy is the person who does these things. And so seven times throughout this book, Jesus will highlight things that we should be doing and that if we do them, what's going to happen? We will be blessed. We will be happy, right? But this book is full of blessings. In fact, chapter 1 begins with a blessing and the final chapter, chapter 22, ends with a blessing. You know what? This book is full of blessings and I would say this book is full of joy. And you would say, but pastor, wait a minute, you know, I've read enough of Revelation to know that there's not a lot of joy in it. Yes, there's a lot of catastrophe. Yes, there's a lot of destruction, but I don't see a lot of joy. My answer to you is, is keep reading, right? You haven't read it till the end. Wait until you get to Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Wait until you get to Revelation 20 and 21. And here's what you'll find. We win. And we win because Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, Satan loses, right? That's enough to get happy about. That should make you very happy. The more you read it, you'll discover God's plan for your future, and you'll discover not only does Satan lose, but he's the biggest loser in the book. And you know, church, that's why Satan wants to keep Christians away from the book of Revelation. Louis Talbot, who did a commentary on the Bible and did a specific commentary on the book of Revelation, he said this, and I quote, he said, the devil has turned thousands and thousands of people away from this portion of God's word because Satan does not want anyone to read a book that tells of he's been cast out of heaven, nor is he anxious for us to read of the ultimate triumph of his number one enemy, Jesus Christ. The more you study the book of Revelation, the more you understand why Satan fights so hard to keep God's people away from it, end quote. Church, we will be blessed if we read it, if we hear it, and if we do what it says. And that's a good way to start reading and studying this powerful portion of God's word. Let's go to verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, when John refers to the seven churches which are in Asia, what he's referring to are the churches in Asia Minor. And church, what we'll find when we get into chapters 2 and 3 are specific letters that Jesus dictates to these seven literal churches in Asia Minor. And in particular, the part of Asia Minor that we're speaking of here is what we would call today Turkey, right? All seven of these churches are literal churches that at that time had congregations, however big or small, in this part of Asia Minor. And John is told by the Lord to write down these seven letters to these seven churches, right? They are literal churches. 
But when we get to chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see that these are churches that represent a time period in church history and that God has a specific message to each of or each phase of church history leading up to his second coming. And he says here, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, church, just underline or highlight in your Bible where it says the seven spirits. There is some debate as to what John is referring to here, because the seven spirits could either refer to the perf or the seven perfect virtues of the Holy Spirit, or it could refer to the seven angels before the throne of God. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah was writing prophetically about the Messiah and that on Jesus would come the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit, the characteristics of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and that he would come in the spirit of the Lord, he would come with the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might and of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Right? Those are seven characteristics. So, so that's one possibility. The other possibility, which is more probable, is that it's not really referring to the Holy Spirit per se, but it is a reference to the seven angels around the throne of God. Now again, church, there are going to be different interpretations to these types of things in the book of Revelation. And we don't have to be dogmatic about it, but this is more than likely referring to the seven angels, and I'll tell you why. Because if you go to Revelation chapter 8, verse 2, John seems to spell it out to us to let us know that the seven spirits are the seven angels. Because he says in Revelation 8, verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So back here in chapter 1, when he talks about the seven spirits who are before the throne of God, he is more than likely referring to spiritual beings like angels around the presence of the Lord, because John makes the same kind of reference in chapter 8. Right? Again, we're not going to be dogmatic about this. This is not going to change your salvation. Right? It's not going to affect how God is going to, and what part you're going to play in the end times when you come back with Jesus. Let's move on to verse 5. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Church, this verse is stressing the sovereignty of God and the finished work of the cross. He's ruler over the kings of the earth. Right? He's... He's the firstborn from the dead. He died for our sins and he shed his own precious blood for you and for me. He's the only one to be raised from the dead and never die again. And his example going before us is what we have to look forward to, that we also in Christ will get a glorified body that will rise from the dead, a body that will never perish. And let me just ask you a quick question. Is there anyone that's looking forward to a glorified body one day? You know, when you're in your, your 20s and your 30s, 
you don't worry about a glorified body. Right? Because, you know what, you recover well and, and everything's working fine, right? <laughs> All the young people here are sitting here thinking, what are you talking about a glorified body? But when you hit 45, something changes, right? <laughs> Who knows what I'm talking about? <laughs> it reminds me of when we were playing soccer uh, a year or two back at our church on Wednesday evenings. And what I didn't do in 20 years playing rugby, I did in two sessions playing soccer. I tore my calf and my quadricep muscles, and it was at that stage where we decided soccer is cancelled for over 40s, right? <laughs> Rather go to rattle fitness where the impact will be a lot less on your bodies, right? And how we would say, just keep on training and keep on stretching and you'll be fine. How we? Moving right along, verse 6 says, Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Firstly, church, when we say amen, what does that mean? It's a declarative statement to, to what was just said, right? When we close prayer and say amen, or when we say amen to something that is being preached, we are just saying yes in unity and affirming what was just said. Right? So if something is said from this pulpit that resonates with your spirit, was speaking to a specific situation in your life, you know what? It's not weird to say amen. All right? Amen? <laughs> and so John says here about how the Lord has loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. And because of this finished work... It says in verse 6, he has made us kings and priests. Right? Other translations say a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. So this is a statement that when God redeems us through the blood of his son Jesus, that we take on the, the mantle of royalty, if you will. And taking on that mantle means that we share in all the privileges and responsibilities of being heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Which in essence means, church, we take on the priestly act of making man known to God and making man, God's, firstly making God known to man and then making man known to God. And that happens in different ways when we witness Christ and when we make Christ known in our world. We are in, in the position of a priest, not in a clerical sense, but in the sense of God using us to present him and represent him to man and for us to intercede in representing man to God. We have this wonderful royal privilege of being a part of the family of God, which comes along with certain privileges. Peter would say something similar in 1 Peter 2, chapter, uh, verse 9, when he said, and you can say amen if you agree to some of these statements. He says, but you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Pastor Ronell spoke about the subject of kingdom of priests a few weeks back, an excellent message. Please go and listen to that if you missed that message. Church, John then tells us here in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, 
and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. When John speaks about Jesus coming with clouds, I believe he means that in a very specific way. And let me explain what I mean. If you would have a look at that timeline again, if you could put that image up for us on the book of Revelation. We are currently in the church age, that's Revelation 1 through 3. But what John is talking about here is when Jesus comes back to the earth in Revelation chapter 19. Right Now remember, before Jesus sets foot on the earth a second time in Revelation chapter 19, what happens? Jesus comes in the clouds to receive his church, and that's called the rapture. So John is not referring to that moment when we are all caught up in the clouds with Jesus, because it clearly says here he's coming with clouds, not in the clouds. Right? And so this is the part that he's talking about here, when Christ actually comes back to the earth and not in the clouds when he comes to rapture the church. Right? Remember I said things are used very symbolically in the book of Revelation. Clouds are used symbolically here to represent the saints or the church that will return with Jesus. Let me give you another reference of clouds in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, it follows what is called the great hall of faith chapter from Hebrews chapter 11, when it lists all these men and women who were so faithful to God. And in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The idea of a cloud is the idea here that Jesus is returning with the saints. The saints are the cloud, church, that he's surrounded by as he comes back to, his, to the earth to establish his kingdom and to end the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. And what does that mean for us as believers? It means that when believers die, or if they are taken up in the rapture and they go to heaven, at whatever point Jesus returns, he will bring the saints back with him to the earth in the battle of Armageddon, and we will rule and reign together with him for a thousand years. This is one of those moments where you say amen, amen, in affirmation to that truth. That's an amazing truth. It also says there in verse 7, and every eye will see him. Not the majority of, of people, not, you know, some people. Every eye will see him return. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 26 to 27, he said, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And what Jesus is saying here, church, is that the second coming, his second coming, is not going to be some obscure thing. It's not going to be vague or, or go unnoticed. Listen, you're never going to have to worry that, that you're going to miss the, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right? It's not like you're going to go visit someone in, in Santon. When you come back to Malbarton, they're going to say, listen, did you see Jesus came back to, to Malbarton? 
right? Firstly, Jesus doesn't come back to Malbat and he comes back to the, the Mount of Olives, right? That's where he's going to set foot the, the set foot the second time. You're either coming with him, church, when he returns, or if you are still here for whatever reason, you are going to know without a doubt that he's back. The coming of the Son of Man is going to be like lightning flashing across the sky. It is going to be monumental and everybody's going to see him. And this is why John writes, every eye will see him and it says, even they who pierced him. And church, that is a reference to Jesus' own people, the Jews, and how they rejected him and how they nailed him to the cross, how they pierced him to the cross. But then he concludes the verse by saying, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. That's everybody else who did not receive Jesus. Even so, amen. And church, let me just say this. For those who deny Jesus, and either directly or in effect, indirectly have pierced him and nailed him to the cross, and have never been reconciled to him, they will be so broken when they see him face to face one day. Just think about this for a moment. If you for all of your life have denied Jesus and said that he isn't the Lord, and I don't believe in the crucifixion, and this whole thing about the cross is made up and it's just a crutch for Christians going around talking about Jesus dying for their sins, and then one day you see him and you behold him, and he's bearing the marks of his crucifixion, and he stands there before you face to face. Let me tell you something. You are going to be undone. You will be broken. It says all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And that word, uh, that word mourn is the Greek word kopto, and it means to mourn, to wail, to weep, and to beat one's breast as a sign of deep mourning. This is going to be a serious moment. Yes. 